0: Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com. I'm
1: Mindy Aber. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology.
0: DIY and How Studios Presents. Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey, hey, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Hey, we got some news for you. All right. I want to let everyone know we are now a part of Pantheon Media. Uh, This show and all of the fantastic podcasts that uh, explore the rock and roll age on rock and roll archaeology are now part of this and will be brought to you by Pantheon from now on. And keep an ear open, because in just a few weeks, we will be launching a couple of awesome new shows for you, something for everyone here at our new home, Pantheon Media. Uh, Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please Tell a friend, have them subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find great podcasts. Uh, As you know, we are now on Pandora and on Spotify. You may be listening uh, from there right now as I speak. So, hey, that's that's great. But uh, please let others know that will help us out in the long run more than anything you could know. All right. Thank you very much. OK, business handled. We're good. Uh, Robert, hit it for me. You need- Okay, we are running with the big dogs today. Or is that the black dog? (laughs) We are talking about one of the biggest bands in the land. uh, The one and only Mighty Zeppelin. Not sure there was anybody bigger in the 1970s than Plant, Page, Jonesy, and Bonzo. Our special guest is Mark Blake, author of the new book, Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin, and Beyond, The Story of Rock's Greatest Manager. Mark is a well-known writer in the rock and roll world. He's written books on Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, Queen, a second one specifically on Freddy, and of course the book The Who, Pretend You Are in a War, which was used as reference in episode 11 of our main series. Well, now he points his pen at one of the real, behind-the-scenes, larger-than-life characters ever to come out of rock and roll, Zepp's manager, Peter Grant. Peter Grant. You know, the only manager to have his own fantasy sequence in a film that is supposedly about the band. (laughs) That's how integral Peter was to the band's overall success. He got the opening sequence. Uh, By the way, the fantasy Peter created in The Song Remains the Same wasn't too far from the gangster character imagined on the silver screen. Well... At least that's what he projected in real life. Art imitates life, life imitating art, uh, wash and repeat. (laughs) Mark had access to most of the significant players in the story. Some even who had died long ago because he had interviewed them over the past few decades as a rock journalist. He was also given full access by Peter Grant's children, Warren and Helen Grant. So, for the first time, this is the complete unvarnished story of the great man. Let's get the good times, bad times with Mark Blake. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Mark Blake. How you doing today? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Oh, well, hey, we're really excited to have you. Uh, you know, we get to talk about one of the biggest bands in the world and uh, their equally biggest manager uh, in the world, uh, which is what your book's all about, uh, Peter Grant, or Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin and Beyond, The Story of Rock's Greatest Manager. Um, but this is not your first rodeo uh, into uh, music journalism, so, so please tell our listeners a little bit about your work.
1: OK, well, before this, I've written uh, biographies of Pink Floyd, Queen and a book about the early years of the Who. Um, I've been writing for magazines and some newspapers here for about 30 odd years. Um, and the, the Peter Grant book is is the latest is the latest book I've done, which I did after basically approaching his son and daughter. To see if they talk to me about their about their dad, and that's that's sort of how it came about. But yeah, this isn't my first rodeo, absolutely not.
0: No, <laughs> no, no, and, and uh, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, you you've actually written two books on Queen, uh, I believe. Uh, one on Freddie Mercury specifically, and then uh, and then Queen themselves, right?
1: That's right. Like the Queen one came out a few years ago. That's more of a biography. The Freddie Mercury book was text for a photo book. There was a load. Of pictures in there, including some unseen stuff, and they asked. I was approached about doing the text for that, so that that that's sort of how that came about. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, that's very timely at the moment with the movie. I out. was
0: going to say, uh what, okay, so what do you think of the movie?
1: I haven't seen the movie. My wife and son went to see it, and they said, "We're going to see it, and we're banning you from coming <laughs> with it." because <laughs> i because know we, why i we know, know we, i
0: know why you know the story too so, intimately
1: I, yeah I, and do you know what i said to them they were only half joking obviously but i really wish i'd been to see it because people I've, <laughs> everybody i have spoken to says look it's a, it's a good film if you allow for dramatic license yeah. uh, you know i mean it's it's not true how it's portrayed but if you allow for dramatic license it's, it's, it's fine, and and from what I've seen, the guy playing Mercury, particularly later on in the kind of moustache, short hair era, has he's nailed it completely. He's nailed it. So I will go and see it. But, yeah, I was banned. I didn't want to be that guy, that old guy. You didn't,
0: you didn't want to be that dad, right? You know,
1: you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't want to be that
0: guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I think I think in the end you will see it, and uh, and to your point, you know, suspend your uh, your 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 academics hat, if you will, yeah, as rock good? journalist, and you yeah. will enjoy it. It's, yeah. um, you know, I've, I've I've actually seen it twice now, and uh, and I enjoyed it more the second time because yes, the first time I was like, mm, oh, they truncated that. Um, oh well, that's not the right timeline. Uh, you know that sort of thing. Although I still enjoyed it because yes, that performance by Rami Malek is. Pretty incredible. And yes. let's face it, Queen's music is just extraordinary. And, and that just shines through no matter what. mm Definitely, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. And by the way, we have used uh, your your book, uh, which I believe is called uh, "Imagine You're in a War," uh, the Who book uh, for for our main series, uh, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. When we talked about okay. uh, about the Who, so uh, yeah, so we're we're big fans of Mark Blake around here. So. Oh, I love it. That's great to hear. That's all I want. <laughs> all right. That's all I need. my life, you know. <laughs> right, right, all right. So let's get into it. Uh, uh, you know. It, in respect to great managers like Brian Epstein, Shep Gordon, or Albert Grossman, you call Peter Grant uh, Rock's greatest, uh, right on the cover. So, why does uh, why does he outshine we all the others in your we mind?
1: Couldn't, we couldn't say Rock's greatest, sort of apart from <laughs> guys. This is show business, after yeah, all. Right. I think the 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 thing that that appealed to me, and I think what Grant achieved, and it was as much a happy accident as anything else is He was a pioneer. he was one of these guys who hustled and bumbled his way into the business b- music business before it was a pop music business and the way the things he did and the things he brought into play for Led Zeppelin enabled him to make a huge amount of money and changed the way the game was at that time. He, he, he empowered the artist and a lot of the things that Grant initiated either on his own or with with other people at that time, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, have become industry standards since. So that's that's the reason we're giving him the greatest tag, but, you know, certainly the greatest story yeah. to be told am a museum,
0: I think. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Hey, Diggers, a quick pause in the action to tell you about a new solution we are talking about here at Rock and Roll Archaeology. If you're a contact user like me, you may be interested in Simple Contacts, the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder anywhere and in minutes. Need to renew your prescription? Take a five-minute Simple Contact vision test online. It'll then be reviewed by a licensed doctor, and then they will ship out your new lenses. All you need is your current contacts, an internet connection, and 10 feet of space. Now, this is not a replacement for your periodic eye exam. But if you have an unexpired prescription and just need more contacts, upload a photo of your doctor's information and order new lenses. Simple Contacts does all the hard work for you by taking care of verifying and confirming your prescription. This is so convenient, fast, reliable. It's a five-star experience. All brands and lens types are available. And most importantly, Simple Contacts saves you money. Again, check out Simple Contacts and get twenty dollars off by going to simplecontactscom roll R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L. Or just enter code Rock and Roll, letter N at checkout. Give it a try, and you can thank me later. Let's get back to the show. It's a pretty incredible rags to to riches story uh, that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, you know, I, I read every word. It was it was a really um, uh, an interesting look behind the scenes. Uh, you know, let's face it. Uh, you know, any of us that uh, is a you know a rock and roll nerd, uh, you know pretty much knows the the big story of Led Zeppelin, they, you know, uh, other yeah. than maybe the Beatles, you know, they're, they stand uh, uh, tall in, in certainly, you know, interesting, crazy, you know, rock and roll uh, uh, off the rails stories. So, you, you know, you, you just can't help to find yourself falling for that. But, uh, you know, Grant's mostly known as a manager with a, a gangster's reputation for, for Led Zeppelin, but, but he seems to be much more than that. So let let's try and start at the beginning, and I and I say that try because his roots are a little obscure. And what what did you find out about his upbringing that sheds light on his later life? Well, I found out he was born
1: in a house that's about five minutes from where I live. Oh, uh, really? Oh, his family never knew why this house, the, the, this address, was on his birth certificate because he's a. Uh, his mother lived, never lived there. They never understood where it was. I went and found the house, discovered it was a hospital, which is where kind of unmarried mothers who had illegitimate children in the 1930s in the area went to have their kids there and give them up to a sort of Christian adoption agency. So this was all, a, this was a kind of weird, added a weird side to the story for the point of view of Peter's son and daughter who enabled me to tell the story. It didn't prove anything. They didn't read a word of it until the book came out. Mm. But uh, so that's, uh, that
0: that's was, Warren and Helen, right? That's
1: Warren and Helen, his son and daughter. They're grandparents themselves now. So that was an interesting thing. His childhood was like something out of Oliver Twist. I mean, it was sort of Dickensian. Uh, 1930s Britain, just before the Second World War, he was evacuated during the Second World War, which is what happened to kids in London. Yeah. They shipped him out to the country to stop him getting blown up. And uh, he had no formal education. And he was incredibly secretive about his childhood.
0: And he was an uh, only child too, right? He was An only
1: child. His mother never told him who his father was. There was no sign of the father, and he never told his ex-wife or his kids uh, anything about his childhood. Uh, they, uh, they found out more about his childhood from me digging up this book, digging up the information for this book. Um, that's really that's really where we went. And I think that explains. So this is this
0: is relatively new information.
1: It's all new. It's all new. Yeah. I mean, no one had had any reason to go and find it before, unless you're going to write a book about Peter Grant. But it illuminates who he was and this larger than life, this aggressive character that he came before. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and let's just let – for those who don't know, just larger than life is not just an – uh, uh, you know, imagery. It is real. I mean, he was what six five and uh, six three three hundred and fifty yeah. pounds uh, at one time?
1: I see the, the stories change all the time. Not so, <laughs> yeah. And this is what's so great about it. I've, everywhere you read, he was six foot five. He was six foot seven. He's actually six foot three because I've I've got his passport in front of me. Ah, I've got okay, of so you know him for you, real, right? He's six yeah. three, but yeah, his weight went up, and he was about twenty stone as we call it in old measurements here. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, he got up to about 300 pounds. I mean, he was a huge guy later on, especially in the 70s, you know, a big a big man, uh, which obviously contributed, it contributed a lot to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that also came up, of course, that was uh, we got hold of hours and hours of interview, of Peter being interviewed on camera for a planned documentary about his life, a planned film, sorry, about his life. Was this, this stuff the, had,
0: the one that uh, Malcolm McLaren was trying to produce?
1: That's the one. And this stuff had been – I got the filmmaker to digitise it for me and I was able to watch it. And it's amazing, some of the information and some of the stuff in there. This stuff and some of the interviews he did just before he died, he finally started talking about his childhood and some of the stuff he left behind in those interviews related to Led Zeppelin is stuff that – even I couldn't publish. We couldn't publish it now. It's potentially libelous, and it's, it's quite damning. So that he kind of left
0: this stuff behind, almost like an unexploded bomb, if you like. Yeah, well, and, well, is, isn't there a story that uh, 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 his son Warren put a, a file or an envelope is, with the, the, the early childhood basic information in into his coffin with he him?
1: He never looked at the envelope. He was given the envelope, and he put it in the coffin. And
0: uh, I said to him, when obviously
1: I went to see Warren, I said, you know, it's a shame about that envelope, but uh, who knows what (laughs) what was in it, but I think I've found out, certainly found out some of it now, but of course, you know, Peter died when he was 60 in 1995 and that's a long time ago now. Too young. Too young, but I think the decisions you make then, you know, you fast forward to, 20-odd years, the family feel different. I think that's why they cooperated with the book now and wouldn't necessarily have done it 10 years ago or maybe even five years ago. It's all about timing, I think, with these things.
0: I agree. I agree. So I I believe Peter's first break into show business was as a stagehand at the uh, Croydon Empire Theatre, right? Freud and
1: Empire Theatre, which was, you know, putting on song and dance acts, ventriloquists, uh, you know, magicians, all that kind of stuff. This was when he either just before he'd been kicked out of school for good, he definitely left at 15, he was either expelled or, or left voluntarily, we're not quite sure. But yeah, that's where he discovered show business, and uh, this is one of the things he talks about in this final interview, which is all this sort of unpublished stuff managed to get hold of. Is just that's where the love of show business came from. He was obsessed with the theatre. He loved watching performers and being involved in that side of things. And I, I think that that never left him. You know, when he was managing Led Zeppelin.
0: Yeah, so working the wings appears to have been his true calling. Um, perhaps where he was happiest, huh? Yeah.
1: I think so. You know, I think he was he was someone that was kind of seduced by show business, by the theatre and, and you know, this life, this bigger life, because there was certainly nothing happening for him education wise or work wise otherwise. So he looked at the theatre actors and performers and thought, well, this this is glamorous. This is exciting.
0: Yeah this is uh, where somebody with you know limited education can uh, turn into you know uh, you know turn their life into something far more than uh, certainly uh, what was uh, expected especially in the, the English class system at the time
1: he was expected to do nothing, you know, working at work in a factory, walked out of the factory after five weeks. You know, he just didn't didn't want to know. So it was, it was it was like I say, he was a hustler. That was the whole point of his story.
0: Yeah. Now, like many English teens in the mid 50s, he found Elvis. And uh, I think that had a profound effect on him, right? It did. I mean, it's
1: hard to explain, in a sense, just how crap music
0: was here. <laughs> you know, it, it, well it wasn't, you know it' was post-war uh there there was no money uh there well, wasn't even instruments I mean I think that's why the rise of skiffle uh the uh, in in the in the 50s is because you couldn't afford uh, anything um you know you had to just make it up on your own the, the DIY uh, type of uh, side of things
1: the who talk about this the stones the yeah, beatles they, they, all they do. All talk. they all talk about this you've kind of got these sort of English ration book kids you know who haven't got enough food because there's not a lot of food after the war they've all got terrible teeth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're all sitting there make, making their own guitars out of playing some wooden string and that that really is how it was and yeah grant heard elvis presley and then thought this he was still young enough at that time
0: yeah he would have been 21 about 21 you know, so. yeah, he was older than he's 10 years older than jimmy page yeah yeah
1: so but he was still in the right age group to look at it and think, "Well, this is something that's exciting." And by that time, he's he's working in Soho in London's West End, you know, working on as a doorman, as a bouncer on, on, on the yeah. club. So he's exposed to all this stuff. And yeah. we had we had our sort of pallid imitations of American <laughs> rock
0: and roll. You yeah, like Tommy Steele and a uh, 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 Donegan and and those guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know how that would appear to Americans. I, I have
1: no idea. But over here, that stuff really did, it did inspire a lot of people. Yeah, really, really did. It was a stepping stone.
0: Yeah. So let's get them to the Two Eyes, uh, a very famous early club in, in London. Can, can you describe the Two Eyes for us and, well, and then how, a, how Peter Grant arrived there? It was a coffee bar. These places were
1: called coffee bars, and this is where teenagers, young teenagers would have gone. You know, there's a great drinking culture in Britain. You can get served in a pub when you're 15 or 16 but you know this is for kids a bit younger than that and they would go to a coffee bar and drink coca-cola or a coffee make it last for a couple of hours and listen to american music on the jukebox and in the cellar was a, a little tiny stage Where, you know, musicians came along and played, and that's where you mentioned Tommy Steele and and some of these kind of British rock and roll acts. That's where they started their careers, thrashing away in the cellar of this club in London's West End. Peter was the doorman. He stood on the door and took the tickets, and presumably if anyone got a bit rowdy, he'd throw them out, but there was no alcohol involved. So So I think it happened too often. It didn't. Have, I think it was fairly sedate at the two eyes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But that's you know you you know after sort of Tommy Steele, you had A and R men going down there all the time looking. Everyone's looking for the British Elvis. That was the thing. They were all looking for Britain's answer to Elvis Presley.
0: Yeah, he he never really showed up, did he? No, he left it. We're still <laughs> <laughs> we're still looking for him. Still waiting now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's somebody else though that does. I think. I, I think come out of uh, the two eyes as well, which you know kind of helps uh, Grant in, in in his pursuits. And that's Mickey Most, right?
1: Mickey Most. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mickey was a, a producer. He produced. I mean, he produced a ton of pop records yeah. in, in 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 1970s and in the 60s. Herman's Hermits. Donovan, and then he had huge success in the seventies. He became a TV star here in the seventies, like an early version of Simon Cowell, on a kind of reality TV music show we had here. Uh, Mickey was a—he uh, was another hustler. He was a kid. He wanted to be a pop star. Uh, he made some records which were terrible, absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're they're probably bad, um, even by British rock and roll standards. They're they're bad, but uh, yeah, Mickey was another guy. He was He was a hustler, wants to be in the business, and him and Peter sort of formed a strange partnership, and ended up. You know, working together later, very, very closely. But, but, yeah, Mickey was an important part of that story.
0: Yeah. So now, 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 Grant did a fair amount of uh, "quote unquote" acting back then as well, and I think that kind of adds to uh, his persona and and how he uses that uh, in, in the future. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And and obviously, um, you know, the, the, there's always the mention of well, he he was a big wrestler, and I think in your book, what I got was he wasn't a big wrestler. He wrestled a little bit under 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 a pseudonym but but that wasn't really his big thing he was he was really just chasing anything in the entertainment business right
1: yeah absolutely i mean the whole wrestler tag has sort of stuck with him but i think he wrestled for about a year along with doing a load of other jobs at, at the same time the acting thing is interesting because he was a bit part actor he was in uh, cleopatra yeah Elizabeth Taylor movie, he was supposedly in that somewhere, he's in Stanley Kubrick's Lolita, which is which is hilarious because I thought, well let's find him, I knew he played a bellhop in a hotel scene, there's only one hotel scene in the film, Peter Sellers is there checking into a hotel, so I'm looking at the crowd behind, I'm doing this on YouTube because someone has uploaded the whole film <laughs> like they do, and yeah. uh, all I can see is his little bellhop scuttling around, and then for three seconds this six foot three, two hundred and fifty pound man <laughs> kind of hoves Coated into the frame,
0: right?
1: Ho, Hoes to view for about three seconds and then disappears. And I thought, ah, oh, that's that's your guy. But he turned up, and we found him in other TV shows here, just silent parts, you know, not 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 talking parts. And uh, the family were fascinated by this as well because this was stuff they hadn't seen. But it was again, it was a way of making money. Like you say, it's the same as wrestling and the way of being near to show business, being part of show business. I don't think he was ever that serious about being an actor. But I do think what he took from that was the ability to play a part. Right. And right. I know that Helen Grant, Peter's daughter, said to me on more than one occasion that she said, truthfully, that that guy with the scarf and the hair and the beard and the gypsy earrings that was, you know, pushing everyone around in the song remains the that, that
0: was a character.
1: He was a character. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't. It, it, it wasn't intimidating to be on the other side of it, but I think he figured there's a role to play here. I can be that guy now. Now I'm, now I'm managing Led Zeppelin, I'll be that guy, and it will work. It will open doors for me. People will do what I say.
0: Yeah. Well, there, there's another character that uh, we need to bring in that uh, also helps uh, add to that uh, and, and gives him uh, an understanding of how, how, how at least uh, managers worked uh, prior to him, and that's Don Arden. Um, so let's talk about Peter working for him.
1: Yeah, Don Arden. Peter went to work for Don Arden around 1963
0: now he's a real rough character right don was yeah absolutely yeah, this, was this a, is not a character this is a this is this is how this guy was
1: this is don was a piece of work he really <laughs> was a piece of work um he was a promoter agent manager here in the uk and he's you know he had the vision to bring over uh, bring over the american rock and roll artists chuck yeah, berry yeah. Uh, little richard all these guys he was the guy that sussed that there was an audience for that here in Britain. We didn't just want Tommy Steele, we wanted the real thing. And Peter went and worked for him. Peter's first job really was driving Don's daughter to school. And, Don's yeah, daughter, and let's
0: say who Don's daughter is Sharon Osborne. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know? yeah, yeah. I interviewed Sharon Osborne a few years ago and we talked a lot about Peter grant And she said, you know, my dad surrounded himself with these guys that were all six foot three and 350, 300 pounds. And that Peter was one of them. Peter used to take her to school and if he did have anything else to do he'd pick her up at the end of the day but what he also did was he learned from don don had these very heavy-handed tactics you know he don made sure he always got paid and i think that was an important thing to point out i mean the, the music business wasn't really a business no it's it was a, a little, cash business the cash business and it's a little bit like the wild west and, you know <laughs> you'd have a you'd have a club promoter you'd bring an act into a club the the, the club manager would turn around and go oh you're supposed to bring a thousand people in you only brought in 600 they couldn't claim otherwise there was no computer record of tickets so he'd go you brought in 600 people not a thousand so i'm docking your money and you know i'm only going to give you so many hundred pounds and don would turn around and say no i'm going to get the money and if the guy refused to pay he'd hit them and, you know, he'd had them up against the wall. And Peter learned how to do that. And that's what Peter did. So Peter learned from Don that you're traveling around the provinces, these little town halls, these little clubs. Everyone's crooked. Everyone wants to skim a few pounds for themselves, skim a few quid. And Peter was the guy who said, no, we'll always get. make sure you get paid. So he learned a lot from Don. Then he became an agent for Don, working in the office, booking these acts. He brought over John Lee Hooker. And then Don refused to pay him his commission, so Don started, you know, fleecing Peter as well. You know, uh, I think
0: he did that with just about everybody. He
1: did it with everybody, so yeah, absolutely. There was that. Peter
0: wasn't singled out.
1: But <laughs> yeah, he learned from the best, definitely.
0: Right, but through Don Arden, that gets us to Gene Vincent, where where Grant learns the trade and the expectations, right.
1: Absolutely. And I think the for me, the most fascinating part, one of the most fascinating parts of the story was hearing about the Gene Vincent experience because, it, you know, it, it, the guy was insane. I mean, the, the, the character, <laughs> the behavior really shows yeah. up of what went on later with, with but there's this idea that, that sort of bad behavior began with the, with the rock acts or with the the who's and the Led Zeppelins, and it didn't. It began, you know, it began way before that. No, let's,
0: j- let's remember, you know, uh, Chuck Berry's in in jail. Uh, he's pulled guns on people. Uh, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis uh, had, had you know had his whole tour had fallen apart because he married his 13 year old cousin. Uh, he's pulled guns out on people, you know. So yes, it's way before.
1: <laughs> no, I think it's good to remind people of that because. It, it, it's tempting to think that it, you know it didn't. It wasn't like that then. I mean, there's a great story that that Peter tells about the first time he saw a hotel room being smashed up, and this was way before Zeppelin. It was Gene Vincent, it was Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, and had a row over a woman, and uh, the door to Eddie Cochran's uh, hotel suite at the Cumberland Hotel in Marble Arch in London was lying in the corridor, and the manager phoned Peter. And, Grant was appalled. He said, I just couldn't believe someone would smash up a hotel. <laughs> and he said to them, he said, look, you're in the United Kingdom now. We do not do that sort of thing in the United Kingdom. Of course, you fast forward 10 years and you've got John Bonham smashing up a
0: hotel suite. With On a, a daily cup. basis, yeah. Right. Throwing
1: a, throwing Robert Plant's refrigerator out <laughs> of the uh, – off the balcony at the uh, Edgewood Edgeworth- Hotel. Yeah,
0: right,
1: right. Into, the, into the drink below. So <laughs> – but he, that was interesting. Grant said, I'd just never seen anything like it. You know, yeah. you've smashed the door up, you've taken the door off its hinges. Yeah. You know, but I've seen that was Gene Vincent. And that stuff was fabulous. I think if he learned to deal with Gene Vincent and Chuck Berry. He could handle anybody. He could handle anybody. And yeah. that was right. the idea you, that you always had to get your artist to the stage. They always had to do the show, and you always had to get the money. And he would always get them to the stage and always get the money no matter what it took.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. So I, I have to ask about the oldest gangster-esque legend about Grant. I think this first shows up in uh, Hammer the Gods, uh, which, you know, is a, a book that uh, should be taken with a grain of salt. I, I know that. But this hanging Robert Stigwood out of the sixth floor window uh, for Don Arden, uh, is, it, I, it well, seems I think- it was really true. It
1: did have I don't think that story's in the Hammer of the Gods, actually. I don't, is it I don't know if it it's. Is. Yeah, I don't think so, but that doesn't matter. It's, it's everywhere else. But <laughs> right, yeah, right, I mean, right. it, 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 this is the story. And. You know, Robert Stigard was a rival sort of impresario. Yeah, he wanted to poach, wanted to poach one of Grant's bands, Small Faces. But sorry, not one of Grant's bands, one of Don Arn's bands, the Small Faces. And Don goes there with some heavies. They're only going to scare him. Somehow, he ends up getting dangled over that fourth floor balcony in Cavendish Square, which I walked past only the other day in Cavendish Square in London. Looked up. Of course, and, you did. <laughs> as I did, I happened to be. And I went, Christ, I'm in Cavendish Square. I'm going to look at the balcony where. it happened and Grant was one of the guys Grant said he had hold of his ankles he had these Chelsea boots on and the worry was that his feet might slip out of them so they had to hang on really tight the question is did it happen well we know that Stigwood was dangled over a balcony that is true but whether Grant was there we don't know Uh but he He always told people he was. And so I like to believe he was.
0: It makes sense. Uh, You know, he he was uh, one of Don Arden's heavies. And, uh, you know, and we know that Don was certainly capable of uh, suggesting that uh, that might motivate uh, a person to do what he wanted. So it makes sense. It definitely makes sense. So so that uh, that gets us to Grant managing the the yard birds. Uh, How did that occur?
1: Well, that happened because he was – him and Mickey Most were working together. Mickey had set up a production company and a record label, and Mickey was producing the Yardbirds, who at the time was more of a pop group, I guess, than than a rock group. Yeah, so uh, Eric
0: Clapton had left by this time.
1: had gone, And Jeff Beck was in there, and then Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page were in there together. And their manager, Simon Napier-Bell, who went on to great success later on, he's sick of them. He's fed up with them. I interviewed Simon about this, and he said, look, I just couldn't deal with them. So I said, I don't want to manage you anymore. And uh, Peter Grant sort of put his hand up and said, I'll take them on. And I think it was simply about he wanted to manage someone. The, the company sat with Peter, had, with Mickey Most, had a management wing and they weren't really managing anybody or managing anybody successful. So he thought, I'll take the Yardbirds. And it was the best decision he ever made because, of course, Jimmy Page was the guitarist in the Yardbirds at, at the end. And that that's the beginning of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, it's yeah. a happy accident. You yeah. know, it's the right place, right time.
0: Yeah. So now, of course, I have to ask about Beck's Bolero session, because I think that's really where the name of the most famous group of the 1970s comes from. Right.
1: That's right. It's Keith Moon. Or John yeah, Lin- let's
0: let's let's say who who is playing on this session.
1: Well, who was on the session? John, uh, Jeff Beck, uh, Jimmy Page together. Who was on the drums? I can't remember. Uh, oh, Keith Moon. Keith Moon has to prayer. be
0: Keith Moon, so Keith Moon and, <laughs> and John-, then John
1: Paul Jones on base. On the base, yeah. Thanks. You remember it better than I do. Um, and the story is that Keith Moon came up with the idea of the the, the Led Zeppelin name. He of a
0: supergroup with these guys. That this the would, we, we should, should make guys. a supergroup or something yeah. like that, right? We
1: should make a supergroup with these guys. It will go down like a Led Zeppelin <laughs> as a play on, on lead balloon. Right. John M., other people say John Entwistle came up with it. I spoke to Richard Cole, who was obviously Yardbirds and Led Zeppelin's tour manager. I saw Richard a few weeks ago. He's very involved in this book. He said to me that he thought it was John M. Whistle's idea. Either way, that name was flying around in the ether. Yeah, you know, Page obviously filed it away and thought, "Hmm, I'll have that for future use." Mm-hmm. And that's that's where. The, I mean, you, know, you listen to Bex Belira, listen to that song. You can hear early Zeppelin esque in it. Definitely, what they're doing, yeah. and they obviously had the name. So yeah. that that's where it went after that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the Yardbirds, after going through Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and uh, and and now have Jimmy Page. I know I know Beck and Page played together. Uh, I think Page came on as a bass player first. And and then mm. he he and Beck played as twin guitars for a few shows. Uh, but then Beck leaves uh, and Grant has taken over the management of the group. I think it's obvious in the book that this is the most crucial relationship in how Peter and Jimmy worked, uh, becomes the model for for future managers, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, he just believed in Jimmy Page. I think Jimmy Page had a vision for what he wanted the Yardbirds to be, and the other, certainly two of the other members, the singer and the, uh, the drummer, didn't quite share that view. And so the band sort of splintered, but Grant decided to stick with Jimmy Page. There is this almost sort of, Peculiar father-son relationship going on there. It's not quite father-son, but it, 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 it just seemed to be that Grant had identified something in Page and just zoned in on it. And it was what, whatever Jimmy wanted, Jimmy got. Yeah. So he identified where the talent was. Very quickly,
0: well, he you know, uh, Page was a known session player for many years. Uh, Mm. You know, had uh, had the chops, had the uh, the the CV, if you will, Uh, and uh, you know, and and had a vision uh, that uh, you know we've seen a little bit of uh, in the you know the the last incarnation of the Yardbirds, and uh, uh, and now he wants to to do something with it. So you know, so the Yardbirds disintegrate, and Page is the last man standing. Banding. Uh, most people know he recruits another known session man and John Paul Jones, uh, who also played on Bex Bolero. And after not getting um, Terry Reid uh, to become the singer, uh, was directed by Reed to an unknown Midlands guy named Robert Plant, who in turn brought in uh, his local friend and bandmate John Bonham on drums. And they become the new yard birds. So let's discuss the new dynamic of this new group who would later change their name to Led Zeppelin.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, again, it's Grant and Jimmy Page driving around London. Grant's doing the driving because Jimmy never learned to drive, but Grant's driving around London, just talking to him. What do you want to do? I want to start my own band. I don't want to go back to sessions. And, you know, bringing in John Paul Jones was an inspired move. But I think it's extraordinary that they managed to find two relative unknowns and that the four of them gelled so well together. But that that was how it was. It was one of those sort of serendipitous moments where you just had four great musicians, but who worked brilliantly together. And again, Grant identified that and let them get on with creating the music while he took care of everything else.
0: Yeah, he never pushed himself into uh, the artistic side of uh, of the business, and, and a lot of managers do. So that's a that's a unique position for him, certainly at the time, right? Well, it is a unique position,
1: but I think he knew what his strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, Helen Grant said to me that my dad couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. That was exactly <laughs> right. So the idea, the idea
0: that he was ever going to try and be – musical himself is like it's never gonna happen mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah well I, and obviously you know page had uh, had all the inclination and all the talent on that side but you know at the same time uh you know most people know jimmy is um you know a, a quiet uh reserved uh type of of person and now he has an older brother who can do all the things that he probably wish he could do physically uh and uh through intimidation uh right there for him right
1: yeah that's very i think that's very much a part a part of it he could hide behind grant as he did you know as as musicians do behind their managers you know all of them all of them do this uh rock stars will get the manager to do the dirty work and definitely with peter peter would do the dirty work and not ask why and I think that's a fundamental difference between his style of management then and, and some of the people that have gone on to manage Jimmy Page and Robert Plant since no man, yeah, since yeah. they all get fired. Yeah, <laughs> they've, all, yeah. they've all been fired. Because yeah. they all turn around and went, Why? You know,
0: yeah. So. Well they they yeah, they yeah, exactly, exactly. Why? I need to reason this in my head and it's like, No, yeah. you no, you don't. I just can't you just go and do what I ask you to do. Yeah. Right. It's not <laughs> those days anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's bring in another character here. Uh, the New Yard birds become uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, and and I, I I believe in your book, Grant makes it the Led. Uh, so everybody knows it is Led Zeppelin and not Lead Zeppelin or, or That's something. That's right. There. He's
1: worried that Americans would pronounce it Lead Zeppelin. Uh, um, we, we probably would. You got,
0: you got blamed. Yeah, he he had a
1: thing in America. They'll pronounce it Lead Zeppelin. That's how he's. Uh,
0: uh, I don't I don't doubt that for a second. I
1: it would have been the same over here as well but anyway but yeah he crossed out the A he crossed out the A that's right there's a contract kicking around someone I spoke to has a copy of the old contract where he scrubbed out the A, called it Led Zeppelin.
0: So he's shopping them to record companies. And so they signed with a label known mostly for its blues and soul records, uh, loved by their er aristocratic president, uh, Ahmed Erdogan. So how did Zepp sign to Atlantic and, and what was the deal that made it so special at the time?
1: Well, I think that what they did is they recorded the album themselves. Jimmy Page paid, right. paid for it, right? Mm-hmm. For everything, right down to the cover shop. So they controlled everything. Which, just,
0: let's say that that was about two thousand dollars, if I remember right, in nineteen. It's about two thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, <So laughs> no, that's just, just to just to make everybody jealous. Yeah, that yeah. album one was made for two thousand dollars,
1: and <laughs> it still sounds like that now. <laughs> yeah, it still sounds great now. Um, but yeah, they took it, and the idea was he produced it. He used an engineer. Uh, he produced it, and we—this is our product. This is our thing. Our piece of art will, you know, will will sell it to the highest bidder. And so, in a the sense, they leased their music to Atlantic Records. They were totally highly like, unusual. Nobody done anything like that. Highly you, unusual man. at the time. Yeah. Highly unusual, and there was a real bidding war going on at the time. I mean. CBS were involved. Uh, Island Records over here wanted, wanted a piece of it. They went to Atlantic because, as you said, it was a great soul and blues label. I mean, by that time— yeah, some, Atlantic,
0: of their, some of their favorites had come off it. Oh. Like they, they they
1: loved Dharma um, Ertigan and his brother, Nessie Ertigan. So they saw those guys as being real music guys. I mean, by that time, Atlantic had been swallowed up by Warners was— Part of the big Warner's conglomerate, so right. but it didn't matter. Atlantic was still a cool, it was a hip label, mm. and of course, Atlantic wanted Led Zeppelin because they needed as, to get in the rock business. They they had Cream, yeah. and Cream had split yeah. up. Cream yeah. hadn't lasted long enough. They split up. They needed skinny white boys with guitars, you know,
0: because <laughs> that was that was the thing. Yeah, uh, you know, didn't make Jerry wexler happy, but he went along with it. But Wexler, Wexler
1: signed them. I mean, I think it was Wexler who said it may have been in in a biography or I read. Wexler said, you know, as fantastic as Aretha Franklin and, and and Ray Charles were, it was Led Zeppelin that was bringing in the money on 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 that label. So I think Wexler was smart enough to see, you know, where the money was in 1968. So, but as soon as he signed them, he handed them over to Armet, to and Arma became their guy. Very, very much their guy, but it was an unusual relationship. That's right; they, they got a huge advance, and but they controlled everything.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that is, again. Highly unusual uh, at that time. It was, uh, I think the 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 word you used was leased. They leased their music uh, yeah. to to Atlantic, uh, and, and hence Warner Brothers. So obviously, this interview and book are about Peter Grant, um, but on his story does rise and fall the story of. Zeppelin. Uh, So on January 12th, 1969, the first album is released and is immediately embraced by the rock crowd, uh, less so by the music press. Um, For the next 10 years, though, Zepp becomes the biggest act in the world. and And it appears to happen Almost overnight. So let's let's break this into two parts. Um, let's first talk about the rise, um, and and I might say that is like 69 to 1975. So what can you tell us about that and how Grant made that happen?
1: Well, the rise happened in America. America got Led Zeppelin before before the UK did, and part of this was because there was FM radio in the states, which yeah, we didn't barely now. knew. Yeah. Just still fairly new, we would play album tracks. They didn't care if there was a five-minute song, they'd play it. We had nothing like that in the UK, nothing like that at all. Plus, you had this fabulous circuit of kind of underground clubs, universities were, were putting on... Uh, hip kind of new bands, so there, there was this, there was this circuit that they could tap into, and if you look at the touring they did in the, in the states, first couple of years was just relentless. They were back there, I think, three or four times in 1969 alone. Mm-hmm. So they they built from the, from the ground up, and then Britain got got it, came into it later. What Grant did round about, which I think, that was number one was recognizing there was this circuit to be worked in America number 2 was obviously a decision never to release singles certainly not in the UK there was some for radio in the states never release singles yeah, I, never think re- G-
0: I think Jerry Greenberg famously uh yeah. uh <laughs> took uh a whole lot of love and cut that to an am uh uh
1: length right that's right. Yeah, that, that happened. In, nothing like that in the UK at all. The, you know, Phil Carson, who was the Atlantic's guy in the UK, he tried to do the same thing, and he got shot down completely. Never put Led Zeppelin on TV. Wouldn't allow them to be seen on TV. I mean, this, yeah, that's this,
0: crazy. That's you know, at the time that is like what? I mean, Top of the Pops. I mean, that's that's what you do. That's what you strive for, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was unheard of at
1: the time to, to do that, but it was kind of weird reverse psychology because it created a mystique around right. the band. Or, who's this band we, we're not allowed to hear on the radio? Who's this band we're not allowed to see on TV? I mean, even for me discovering Led Zeppelin and discovering some of this music a few years after they it had come out, I couldn't find out anything about it. What do they look like? They didn't have a picture on the cover after the first so two. So yeah, there was nothing to see, and I think that was an incredible strategy to have obviously he did it with Jimmy Page's involvement and Page's blessing but that was fascinating to me to do that because that created an aura and then of course around 1972 they go and bring the American promoters to their knees by turning around and saying we're not going to use an agency to book a Led Zeppelin to us we're taking out your percentage because at that 90 yeah,
0: 10 split right
1: 90 10 split it was roughly tended to be kind of 40 60 in favor of the act before that and an agent would walk out with 40 percent and they turned around and said no we're just going to get a a dj to announce it on our favorite radio station in new york there is a led zeppelin tour here are the dates see what happens cues around the block Announce another show And that's how they did it And the 90-10 split Still meant that 10% of Led Zeppelin Was a lot of money For a promoter But that absolutely Brought the business To its knees In that's it The The, the animosity that that generated and the resentment carried, followed Grant around, you know, for the rest of his career. But it was a deal breaker. You know, that was an inspired thing. Everybody made money, but it meant they made more. Led Zeppelin made more than anyone else.
0: And that's sort of uh, the uh, the break uh, as it stands today for the bigger acts, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of become industry standard now. That was it. I mean, th- th- this is in, go back, I mean, Don Arden always said his acts work for me. My artists work for me. I think, This is a big point. Yes, this is a big point, and
0: that was how managers
1: thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: get out there. Uh, uh, You're just a product. I got to run the business. Your product, right? Yeah. So this, you've got Grant, this incredibly
1: tough and and quite antagonistic man who goes no. I'll look after the artist, look up the talent comes first, always comes first. She's incredibly had a great deal of foresight and it almost went against the grain of his personality as it appeared, as he appeared, his public persona. Yeah, the character we've established. Look after the talent and we will all make money. And that was that was the principle and it and it worked but like you say by 1975 they're the biggest band in the world they're absolutely huge and that's the point where grant turns around to robert plant i think it was and said look you can do anything you can fly to saturn if you want to <laughs> yeah well, you- yeah. Where where do we go now? Because it's like, how many more nights can you do at Madison Square Gardens or London's Earl's Court? It, it, it got as big as it was going to get. And I think 70, you mentioned 75. I think that's the tipping point. Definitely.
0: All right. So why do you as a music journalist think Led Zeppelin ruled the early 70s in almost Beatlesque fashion?
1: I think the music was fantastic. It was something new at the time.
0: I mean, well, especially you- as they progress. I mean, obviously Led Zeppelin won. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, they, they took the old blues masters and then uh, applied applied. <laughs> uh, current recording techniques uh, and you know and then you you, you know you have Bonzo uh, you know on the four sticks uh, in the back there who's just blasting everybody at full volume on everything and uh, you know so so they start off with a you know kind of a, a head scratcher and I know a, a lot of the critics are like uh, well let's well, just recycle blues but then you get Led Zeppelin too where they begin to find themselves and certainly and and I know it was not at the time, but Led Zeppelin three, where you get that balance of the the heaviness and the acoustic side of things, I think that's where they really begin to find themselves. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I would broadly. Broadly, yeah, definitely. I mean, each album was a progression. Each, no two albums sounded exactly the same. But I think even um, of those first two albums, when it's the more basic blues stuff, it hadn't been done uh, quite so well, quite so loud. Yeah, nothing. Now, a, little so, bit, you know,
0: a little bit with cream, but then, uh, you know, to the next level. Yes. This
1: took it to the next level. And I think as well that they had that fabulous dynamic, the visual dynamic on stage with Robert Plant <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Jimmy Page. Yeah.
0: Well, you <laughs> do, you know, you have that mysterious mystique guy all in black, uh, you know, Dev- uh, and then, then you have, yeah. the you know, the, the Viking God uh, on the you other side.
1: The, devil, the, sort of the devilish guy and the Viking God. I mean, <laughs> that never goes up that never never gets old. I mean, bands are still recycling that.
0: Oh, yeah. That's that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the 80s in the in the hair metal scene. It literally you had to have the blonde singer and the black haired guitar player.
1: I can't get out. if you didn't you got, you got the hair die out and you fixed that <laughs> right so, exactly but this is it but I think that was just such a powerful it's a powerful music and also for a younger generation this is something that came across in researching the book it was for, for, for kids of the 70s it wasn't necessarily for their older brothers who'd lived through Woodstock and the, the 60s and that period this was for the next by the way they,
0: from, they famously did not play Woodstock too
1: no Grant didn't want them on the bill at Woodstock but yeah, yeah this is this music for the 70s i think yeah. and uh, i think
0: for- it is it, it is not they they just show up a little bit ahead of time mm. uh you know uh then in because they show up in 69 uh you mm. know and you could probably put black sabbath in there as well uh because they show up in 69 although i think their first album doesn't launch till 70 um but yeah this is this is the music of the future definitely
1: that's, that, that. I think that's why it worked, though, to answer the original question. You know, it was something new. It was visually exciting. It was powerful. There was this aura around it as and well. It
0: was, and it was scarce. It was managed scarcity.
1: Yes. Very, very clever. Don't make them too available. You made them unavailable. They yeah. didn't do a lot. They didn't do a lot of interviews it was a big deal you know and so while yeah, they no, no Ed Sullivan for uh, for, uh for Led oh, Zeppelin it's <laughs> told, while they're unavailable the the mystique just builds the stories build and build and build around them
0: yeah and and of course they they uh internalize that and and lyrically and musically they get more uh mysterious and 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 throw that back to the audience which is you know obvious in in on Led Zeppelin 4 uh you know no name uh, you know, t- t- taking a page out of uh, the, the Beatles' uh, uh, Abbey Road. You know, no, you know, don't, you don't need anything. You, you don't even need a picture of them. You, you don't need a picture that has anything to do with rock music. It doesn't matter. It'll sell a million copies. And that's, that's what happened. He delayed the album. The, the
1: arguments over the cover delayed the album by, I think, about three months.
0: Yeah. But,
1: yeah. okay, Grant wouldn't budge, the band wouldn't budge. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the four symbols and yeah. the image. Add that,
0: that add to the mystique, right?
1: Absolutely. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All the way down. And then Houses of the Holy, uh, you know, again, uh, all those albums are just, uh, you, you're, you, there's no myth uh, on them. It's, uh, it's really, it's really incredible. Um, okay. So. In the book, uh, and I think we both agree, it appears 1975 is when the cracks really start to become gaping holes. So let's let's talk uh, uh, about the decline. Um, you know, obviously, we need to start with the the drugs and the insane expectations of a successful rock act in those days. You know, is is that is that like, you know, would you lay that as the foundation?
1: I think the drugs played a part in it, especially when you had kind of hard drugs. I mean, heroin came into the band. I mean, obviously not with everybody, you know.
0: Uh, yeah, mostly Page, I believe.
1: Mostly Page, a little bit John Bonham. I think John Paul Jones and Robert Plant had their moments, but they kept their heads a bit more. I mean, obviously... Once you bring – once – I mean anyone I spoke to would say to once heroin crept into the band, things started to change. Plus at this point, this is the point where things start to become problematic. For Brandt, he developed a huge cocaine habit. And, yeah, you know, the, the Peruvian marching powder. Peruvian marching powder. And you can't underestimate the importance this had on it. And it certainly – in terms of Peter's own story, as you know, as his children were telling me, and as other people were telling me that knew him at the time, that's when he takes his eye off the ball. In terms of his, his home life, you know, he starts to neglect his home life and his wife at the time, Gloria, and that's when the cracks start to appear. Plus, you've had a band that have been working nonstop for five, six years yeah. by that. You know, you've got a little bit of a power struggle now between Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Robert is younger than Jimmy. He was hired by Jimmy to be the singer in Jimmy's band. And, of course, he's Robert Plant now. He's the Viking god. He's writing the songs. He's singing them. You know, so he can't expected to be seen as the junior partner anymore i think that was a very important part of the, the problems in zeppelin you know they're totally understandable
0: as well oh yeah oh yeah so they went and formed swan song uh, as a label how, how did they not f- realize that they're falling into the same trap the beatles did
1: I don't know, but because their egos were so inflated,
0: <laughs> they thought they thought they could do anything. You know, when
1: when when you got to that stage, you, they thought they were indestructible. I mean, Grant, yeah, that's right. They launched Swansong Records. We're going to sign our favourite acts. You know, we're going to act as a and All sounds good on paper, but in practice, it was impossible because they're either off touring or writing a new album. Or taking enormous amounts of drugs and they haven't got time to concentrate
0: nor on did this. they hire people to run it uh who would run it professionally uh you know how to run it that's what's so
1: brilliant i, I love talking to everybody i spoke to that worked for they got hired for that job danny goldberg yeah who's yeah. Fabulous. yeah he fabulous. went on
0: to do a yeah, he managed yeah,
1: Nirvana. Yeah, you yeah. know he was like a 21 year old and <laughs> Danny's stories were hilarious about being a 21-year-old American lad in the middle of these awful kind of English gangsters. And, you know, other people I spoke to, you know, told the same story. They all got the job, and it was with an unlimited expenses account, but nobody really knew what they were supposed to do. How can I sign an act? Because I have to get all of Led Zeppelin to sign off on it, and they wouldn't
0: pick up the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the only premier act, I think, that comes out of Swan Song besides Zeppelin is Bad Company, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was very much down to Clive Coulson,
1: who was a roadie for Led Zeppelin originally. And it was Clive who brought them to Peter Graham. And Clive did the day-to-day handling of Bad Company. But Peter, obviously, quite wisely, they all realized that if you said you're managed by Peter Graham, doors are going to open. That's yeah. exactly what happened. But, yeah, you know, I mean, Bad Company was a huge success. And there was a couple of other little successes in there, but, but nothing on that scale. I mean, no, they, they, wanted- could have, they could
0: have had a lot more. I, I, I loved reading the book uh, about the, the the tapes that were found after Swan Song closed, including, like, early Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden were in there, yeah. I mean, there was all sorts. They could have had Queen. I mean, yeah. Queen wanted. Yeah, that's right. Queen wanted, really wanted Peter Grant to manage them. He couldn't manage Freddie. Imagine Freddie Ray. <laughs> I don't mean it. Really uh, would have yeah, those are two bigger than life personalities. Uh, yeah, um, that, it, it's not it's not the the opposites the way uh, Page and and Grant were. So. No, it's a different kind of
1: opposite. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, so, um, you know, 1975. So uh, first, I got to ask about the the story of the two hundred thousand dollar cash robbery. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that was that was during the seventy five tour, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that was earlier. Actually, it was the seventy three tour. Oh, it was it seventy three? Like,
1: fake hotel in not in, in New York. Yeah, two hundred two hundred grand disappears from a hotel safe. That money was never stolen. Someone told me the other day. I, I was I was I was out having coffee with one of Zeppelin's old security guards. He said that money was back in England within uh, forty eight hours.
0: Really? So. To
1: this day... I, I know
0: they've never solved the case.
1: They've never solved it, and to this day, no one will... tell. I, I, I think I know what happened. I think that money was taken to pay someone for something.
0: Oh, <laughs> and, you mean proving proving marching, marching powder. Or maybe pay off someone. Oh, some debts that were owed that someone. could escalate into murder. Yeah. Oh, who knows?
1: Yeah. Who knows? No one will. No one will say any. And anyone who knows, most people who know are dead, and anyone else who knows is still alive now. But there was no way that money was stolen. Jimmy, I interviewed Jimmy Page a few years ago, and he said, "Oh, it was um, a Puerto Rican cleaner." had a key and got in there, and last I heard, he disappeared back to South America with the money. I was like,
0: no. No, they would have caught that no guy. Way. <laughs> yeah. No way. No way. That guy with 200K would have been caught,
1: yes. <laughs> he would have been caught. No, there was something very mysterious going on there. Yeah. But I, like I said, not only last week, I was told that the money was never stolen. But it was needed for something urgently. And somehow it escalated. And next thing you know, the cops have been called and uh, you know, everyone's being searched. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Yes. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, you know, you know, as we said, you know, 75 things begin to to turn. Uh, you know, uh, I think we all agree Swan Song was probably not the best idea. Um, they're just taking on too much. And then the car accident in Rhodes.
1: That's right. Well, Robert Plant and his family were involved in a car accident. They had an American tour lined up uh, in 76. To, yeah. To, ready to, they were ready to go plant has a car accident, breaks his ankle, loads of injuries. His wife at the time was very seriously injured. That kind of puts the brakes on everything. And this also all coincides with two other things. They went and became tax exiles to uh, avoid being clobbered with kind of 83% tax in the UK. They all left the country and they kind of moved to – Yeah, they had
0: to be gone for at least nine months. Is that right?
1: Something like that, you could only spend a certain amount of time in the UK and that had a huge disruption to your family life. You know, Warren Grant was saying to me, one minute we're at home, next minute I'm in the Swiss Alps playing with John Paul Jones's kids. It was like the sound of music, I think was, was what he was saying to me at the time. But that, that was a huge disruption. You have to get out of the country. And also Grant's marriage was falling apart. And this is a very, very crucial part of, of the story. Because the end of loss of his the end of his marriage really contributed to his decline. Yeah, you know?
0: like like Zeppelin never recovered after John Bonham's death. Uh, I, I think you're right. I, I don't think Peter Grant ever recovered after Gloria left him. No, and this
1: is what his wife, uh, what his daughter, and his son was saying to me. And uh, for me, amid all this madness and. Piles of, you know, uh, Peruvian marching powder and TV sets flying out of hotel windows. You've got this personal drama, you know, with the two kids because, of course, Peter got custody of his children, which in 1976 for a father to get custody of his children, certainly here in the UK, was considered unusual, yeah. especially, especially if that father was managing uh, a rock and roll band. Well, unless you've got all the money sight me- of God. Exactly. So you've just answered the question.
0: So, <laughs> right. How he got
1: Unfortunately, of, yeah. How he got custody of those kids. But that to me is that he's a he – it was a very poignant part of the story and it's something quite sad and bittersweet about it all because while all this chaos and madness is going on, he's also being a dad and actually mm-hmm. a lot of the time being a pretty good dad. Mm-hmm. You know, an apologist, being an apologist here, but he was, he was a good father a lot of the time. Um, a little lenient by all accounts, but he was a good, he was a good dad. So he's trying to juggle all that while his band are starting to, uh, you know, fall apart. People, right. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's all around that time, seventy six, seventy seven. Is Gloria still alive? She is still alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's
0: good. That's good. That's good. Because you know, I, I, I bypassed her here at the beginning because she was also uh, in the entertainment business as well, right?
1: was a singer uh she was in a singing group with her sisters and uh yeah she gave up her career really when her daughter helen was born oh, yeah, yeah
0: yeah which yeah. is common at the time uh, Very much. not yeah. so much today but uh no, unfortunately women uh, were expected to do that uh, at that That's time right. yeah Yeah. All right. The song remains the same. It's just a huge rock and roll film. And this is a bright spot uh, for them at this this point. One of the most successful and for a very long time, the only look that one could get to Zepp without a concert ticket. So... It's an interesting story. I, I actually learned a, a few things uh, reading uh, uh, the book about its making. It starts off, I think, with the uh, Madison Square Garden in 1973 with, with one director – and then ends up with a uh, kind of mishmash between a staged concert uh, in uh, in 76 and then having to redo the quote-unquote dream sequences and uh, things like that. Because I originally was shot in 16 millimeter, now it was 35. Anyway, you tell the story.
1: Well, it was chaos. You have told the story, really. It's- <laughs> Yeah, they started with one director. Then they realized that he hadn't shot the concert footage properly, so he got he got kicked into the curb, and they hired an Australian director called Peter Clifton. Peter right. was, I interviewed Peter at great length for this book, and very sadly, Peter died oh. just a, just a few weeks after I'd spoken to him. But I spoke to Peter a lot, and he was hilarious on on this. Again, this is and I think
0: he never got paid a dime, right?
1: <laughs> he never got paid at time, and, and yet he graciously still talks about the film because it's the big thing that he's remembered for. You know, he made a lot of did a lot of filming around the '60s and around that time. But yeah, he so everything had to be reshot. So you've got this fabulous concert footage from Madison Square Garden. They had to restage some of it, so they did it in Shepperton, which is a very famous film studio here in the UK. Oh yeah, and of course they had to wear exactly the same clothes. And part two, of the two or three years later. Yeah, I think it's about two years, two years later. later. Right, two years later. Two years later. And they had to reshoot certain scenes, and they spliced it all in. But John Paul Jones had cut his hair by then, so they had to get a wig on him. Right, See? right, right. <laughs> but the whole idea of faking a Led Zeppelin show really went against the grain of, of Led Zeppelin and Peter Graz. So he didn't really talk about He didn't tell anyone this at the time. Mm-hmm. In mean, a secret outside the business. So and then you of course you have these kind of fantasy sequences. I mean it's a very seventies concept where each of the band member does a sort of fantasy scene that reflects their life. And in the case of John Bonham,
0: that's Yeah, very very Excalibur. Very, uh... yeah, but John
1: John Bonham was the one who comes out of it
0: the best because he's just he's just John Bonham, right.
1: <laughs> and driving his driving a sports car and, and Grant's portrayed as a gangster. Robert Plant's a Viking god rescuing a sort of maiden from a tower and Jimmy Page is well, Christ knows the, what The hermit
0: he- from the, <laughs> the the the, 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 the centerfold of uh, of uh, Led Zeppelin 4 right it's,
1: it's very tarot card inspired <laughs> obviously with lots of sort of satanic <laughs> Imagery, yeah. uh, uh, you know. I think it's safe to say the best thing about that film is a concert sequence. The,
0: the Shepperton uh, stuff is just uh, fucking amazing. I mean, I just watched yeah. it the other day, and you know, I probably hadn't seen that film in twenty years, and uh, yeah. you know, and, and and you know, I had seen it uh, as a midnight uh, movie back in the in the seventies as a kid and huh. what have you. And boy, that second they open, you know, there's that back shot of them. Yeah. It is unbelievably
1: it's amazing that's why that's why i wrote about it in the beginning of the book and the prologue is me a a midnight movie or equivalent of in london you know as a kid seeing the film because that's where it comes from and of course in the film is the now famous footage of peter tearing a strip off the buildings in (laughs) uh in baltimore baltimore civic hall because he's allowed a bootleg uh poster seller in and that's where you know that's where everybody first saw Peter Grant that's where yeah, I first saw The Peter gangster
0: Graham. yeah gangster really came about well first there's the opening uh, uh, fantasy sequence of him being a gangster uh, yeah. and uh, you know and shooting the place up and uh, you know which which you know again from your book you know you you, be, you go oh yes of course it's all the money guys it's the promoters it's the record company managers and so on and so forth uh, and, and it is just you know it's it's fantasy but sure you 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 know when when you're 17 years old and you see that you just assume man this, this is a bad motherfucker you know and that's him you know so and then then he proves it in you know in his actual job later on in the film is your point yeah yeah
1: completely so that that's where the image of peter grant was cast i think very much in that film
0: all right, so 1977, and, and, and it seems this is where things just really fall off the rails. So the 77 tour is the last America will get of the band, uh, and it really just seems to go from bad to worse. So I have to ask, certainly as a San Franciscan and, and a, a bit of a Bill Graham fan myself, what well, happened on July 24th, 1977?
1: Well, there was all these problems going on between Bill Graham and Peter Grant, two huge characters clashing Butting heads. I think this stuff had been going on for a while before. Um, Grant demanded a huge advance on their money. He needed the money urgently. That was to buy drugs. Bill Graham talked about this in his his autobiography. Yeah. And uh, then basically during the show, they're doing two nights, uh, two days at two dates at the Oakland Coliseum. Yeah. Day on the green. Day on the green, which was a huge thing, wasn't it at the yeah, time? It yeah, it certainly was. We we heard about these shows in UK and we thought, wow, what these day on the green to go to have something like that here it would have been amazing. Mm. But the, what but you guys is, do
0: have Hyde Park every now and then, so it's works. not the
1: same. It's yeah. not the same, Christian. Yeah. I'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we, we yeah, and, and there's an altercation backstage. Warren Grant is 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 it's the school holidays, so while Warren, Warren and Helen are on tour with Led Zeppelin, Warren's backstage takes a sign off a door for dressing room door. A security guard challenges him. Warren gets pushed over. I spoke to Warren about this, and he's adamant he got pushed over. Other people said they saw him get pushed over, but they thought it was probably an accident. He goes and tells his dad, and that's when all hell breaks loose. And uh, by this time, Peter had a guy working with him, a security guard called John Bindon. Yeah, who was also- an ex-actor, right? He was an actor in the UK. He used to appear in sort of hard-man TV roles. I remember seeing him on TV as a kid. But he was a gangster in real life. He was a protection – he did protection racketeering – he was somebody you'd hire to get money out of people. He was, he was a thug. A real and thug. This wasn't a kid. He was a, real, he was a real thug. And he came on tour as Peter's muscle. Again, this is evidence of all the paranoia that was going on at the time. And he gets involved. The security guard is beaten up by Peter, Peter Grant, and John Bindon. Pretty,
0: pretty savagely, too.
1: Pretty savagely. People, there's some discrepancy over how savagely. Some people said more than others. But either way, the guy got beaten up, which he shouldn't have been. Bill Graham wants them all arrested, but he obviously doesn't want anyone arrested until after Zeppelin played the second show. And so there's this awful kind of awkward confrontation the following day where Zeppelin turn up, they play the show, then they disappear straight after all the security, Bill Graham's security team, uh, Itching to take on Led Zeppelin's security team. Everyone – now, understandably, they want revenge. And Gun, then,
0: gunfight at OK Corral. It
1: really is like that. And then the following morning, uh, Grant, John Bonham, because John Bonham had got involved and kicked the security guard in the balls when he'd seen what had happened. Yeah. So Grant, he he John was always
0: Bonham, on the front line of those sort of things. From what always
1: I that, the but, guy. Yeah, yeah, he was the only member of Led Zeppelin. Realistically, he was going to throw a punch. Yeah. Tell you the truth. The traffic traffic. <laughs> but uh, he gets he gets arrested, Richard Cole. The tour manager gets arrested and Binding gets arrested. And there's a lot of information about this in the book that comes from this unpublished interview that Peter Grant did that I got hold of. Grant talks through the whole thing. But, of course, they get away with it. Because yeah. their attorney, Steve Weiss, who is a huge part of this story, Weiss is dead now. Huge part of this story. He's a very powerful man, and Peter's a powerful man, and so you know they're in. I think they were in custody for less than two hours, and the case got kicked out a year later. They paid off the security guard. Um, it was a real f- sort of flagrant abuse of power. And Bill Graham, for one, never ever forgave. Him. No, never. F- no. no. To, you know. Absolutely. And, and of course, um, what then adds to it is that 48 hours Two after- Two days later, yeah, in New Orleans. Robert Plant discovers in a phone from a phone call from his wife that his, his young son has died. His son had come down with some fluke, awful fluke illness and had passed away. And that's the point where the shutters really came down because he was on the other side of the world. He just discovered his kid had died. His manager and his security guard and his drummer have just been involved in a, a, an ugly altercation with a security guard. And that was the point Robert Plant, to all intents and purposes, left Led Zeppelin for the next year or so. Uh, the band come off the road. Everybody's waiting to see if Robert Plant will come back. And, and you yeah, know, that's when the rock really starts to set in.
0: Yeah. Uh, and wh- what did Peter do during the time? Is that is that when the divorce happens with Gloria? It-
1: Divorce has just happened before that. Yeah, the divorce had happened before that. But in 1978, Peter meets uh, a Playboy bunny called Cindy Russell.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, and Cindy. Cindy had never been interviewed in her life for anything, but Cindy, Cindy was interviewed for this book, and well, she Cindy- was
0: interviewed for for Playboy. Uh, at least her likes and dislikes. Oh, most definitely. Most
1: definitely. And Cindy Cindy was uh, did a lot of modeling in, in the UK with clothes on. Um, in fact, as a kid, I remember seeing the she, – she advertised Smirnoff vodka. Right. And she'd seen skydiving in a bikini. And that advert was plastered all over the London Underground Tube network. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid. And your bedroom. And, yeah. They never <laughs> made it to my bedroom, actually. But it, but it, it's a vivid memory in my mind of a, a naked – so sort of half-naked skydiving female. Yeah. And Cindy moves – Cindy comes into Peter's life. She was only a few years older than his daughter. She moves into Peter's moated mansion in Sussex. He lived in this huge country house with a moat around
0: – Horse Lunges, I believe. Horse it's Lunges
1: Manor, 15th yeah. century, and uh, with a moat and a working drawbridge. Wow. And she moves in. And she lives with them. And, and again, for me, this is you know this is a really important part of the story because you get this other perspective on Led Zeppelin are off the road, Peter, uh, Robert Plant's in mourning. Everybody's waiting to see if Plant wants to carry on. And Peter is now living with a Playboy bunny, and her description of. That world that she moved into for me was just priceless. Some of it was just comedy gold. You know, you turn she turn up round around Jimmy Page's place, find him lying sort of, sort of like a Dracula type character stretched out on the sofa surrounded by candles and was sort of told just ignore him that's that's what jimmy does you know she said it was an extraordinary world to 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 come into you know just the parties the excess but also on the other side the family life you know warren's son uh, peter's son warren he's living at home his daughter's away at boarding school
0: but there's normal stuff going on at the same time as all this chaos so the boys get back together and while Paige is almost useless, uh Plant and Jonesy do the heavy lift on In Through the Outdoor, uh and it becomes the last album. So what are your thoughts on what they were trying to do with it?
1: I think they were trying to salvage it. I mean I I've interviewed Robert Plant and John Paul Jones about that album. They said that, you know, it was never their intention to to write most of the material. It happened because the other two just were not turning up or not turning up until much later, especially Jimmy Page. I mean, this is the point that heroin has started to really impact on the band. And, uh, you know, in the middle of the recording of that album, uh, John Bindon, the security guard, gets arrested for murder. Well, he, he, he commits murder and leaves the country thanks to thanks to peter grant so uh, this was obviously re- revealed so th- there's this drama going on as well as the band drama if you see what i mean but you know, in, you know that that was going to be that was the end because within less than a year john bonham had passed away as well
0: yeah the the band is not destined to continue into the 1980s it's interesting they really are like they're they're like in amber uh for the 1970s they uh they just fit so perfectly you know from 1969 you know granted uh, uh led zeppelin one comes out but but they and and as we've already discussed they are the band of the future at that point and now in 1980 they're the band of the past and on september 25th bonzo's found dead after rehearsals for what was going to be an american tour and with that led zeppelin ends yes that, that That is it. They took the decision to end.
1: What was interesting for me in researching this book, though, was obviously discovering just how much pressure Grant was under to, to get them back on the road with another drummer because – you
0: know, oh, wow. It, I, everybody under the sun would be pushing uh, for him to get this back together. I mean, let's, you know, to, to most people, you know, they're going to assume, well, you know, it, this is pant, plant and page. Uh, that's 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 all you need. Um, but that's not that's not really the case when it comes to Let's Up.
1: No, not at all. But, you know, the pressure obviously came from Peter's attorney, Steve Weiss, particularly. He was very keen. He had a financial interest in the band. And this was the point for Grant as well when the the vultures start circling.
0: Yeah.
1: uh, Which, again, we kind of explore that in in the book. These characters that have sort of come into his life towards the end of the 70s before Bonham dies, a lot of opportunists who – opportunities saw – the chance to potentially make some money out of Led Zeppelin by, by by trying to get a piece of the band. So there's a little bit of a conspiracy at the time to get rid of Peter as Led Zeppelin's manager. That was going on you know, before Bonham died. So there was all that going on as well. And I think that that's why I think the death of Bonham hit Grant so hard, also because people were trying to take his business off him. He'd lost his wife. He'd lost control of everything. So it's about more than just the death of John Bonham. I think that was almost a straw that broke the camel's back.
0: Yeah. In the ensuing years, the three survivors together have only played out three times. Live Aid, Atlantic's 40th, and Celebration Day in 2007. So there's really not much to manage. Um, Like the band, it seems like Peter Grant's career ended when Led Zeppelin ended.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty much what happened. They were all, there were these various attempts, sometimes quite amusing, to sort of bring him back into the into the business again. There's there's this incredible story about they were trying to stage a concert on the fortieth anniversary of Hiroshima bombing. Oh, that's rock, right. Yeah. Rock, rock for Hiroshima. <laughs> some some hustler that that Richard Cole and Peter knew from the Zeppelin days had conned the Japanese government into okaying this. And so he hires Grant and Richard Cole to to go to to go to Japan and try and set this thing up. And they were going to get Prince. They they said they were going to get Prince to play, Prince and Brian Adams. I spoke to Richard Cole about this, and Richard said we never even got as far as talking to anyone. We just made a noise and said who we wanted. Right. They, they get to this site, um, you know, presumably in Hiroshima, but I don't know. Said it was completely useless. You know, there's no way you could have ever staged a concert there. But they, they, these sort of desperate attempts to sort of do things. But I think by that point, Peter was so lost in you know his drug use, his relationship with Cindy Russell was bro- started to break down as well, and he became he became quite reclusive during this point. I mean, the, the family's stories from that period are, are are kind of sad, but also quite amusing as well. You know, this this madhouse that they ended up living in.
0: Yeah, I, I took away that it, it it just seemed like he died slowly over fifteen years uh, after the death of his band on and on November twenty first, nineteen ninety five. He's gone at at sixty.
1: He had gone. I think what would say in Peter's defense is that towards the end of his life, in the last few years of his life, he got clean he lost incredible amount of weight gave up the drugs and he came back to, he did come back to life again partly because of his family his his son and his daughter both had kids themselves and that really did did change him and that, that to me is the, the interesting part of the story if it had all just been a terrible tragedy and he just died alone in the bedroom on a mountain of cocaine face down
0: scarface style right I, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that seems like the the obvious uh, that, ending but, you know, that you, would have made an ending for a movie that
1: would have made mm-hmm. any different movie. But what amuses me, and maybe this is an English thing, I don't know, is that he just packed it all in. He went, no, packed it all in, sells the house. He had to sell the house. He had to pay the tax man. Goes and moves to a place called Eastbourne, which yeah. is like a yeah. retirement town.
0: And um, well, didn't he live above the garage for a period of time still, after yeah. he sold uh, horse lunges?
1: That's right. He did. He went and moved into the, into the, sort of the chauffeur's quarters yeah. and, and lived there for a little while as well.
0: Well, it but seems like he did keep his vintage cars for a bit.
1: He kept the vintage cars and and started renting them out to people for weddings. And in the last couple of years of his life, he often offered to, to chauffeur at weddings just, just for cash in hand. He didn't need the money, but he put on the cap and the gloves and the uniform and, and, and drive some happy couple to their wedding. And I always think it must have been amusing if somebody in that congregation was a Led Zeppelin fan suddenly recognized this this big six-foot-three guy wearing the cap and the the cuffs and realized... Holy leg. shit. it <laughs> Peter shit.
0: Grant from <laughs> Les Zeppelin.
1: He's, he's, he's right. take driving me off to my honeymoon. But you know, that amused me, the ending. He ends up as this doting grandfather living very modestly, very happily, putting his feet up, watching TV every night and getting phone calls. Getting phone calls from Guns and Roses' his manager, are begging for advice on how to deal with Axel Rose, and you know, Grant's like, "Call me back later." You know, my favorite TV program,
0: <laughs> Benny Hill's on <laughs> Benny Hill. Yeah, it
1: was East end, Enders actually. East yeah. Okay,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, inescapable. Yeah, but that that amused me. That's that's what made the story for me. That he was happy at the end. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you know that's fifteen years. uh, You know, it sounds like he reconnected well with uh, Warren and Helen, uh, and um, that uh, you know he ended up, as you said, being a a doting grandfather. So I I know Ed Bicknell suggests he's like the bridge from the old school, old school vaudeville biz types of uh, exploitation of the artist to the now fully professional MBA types. But what do you think? Peter Grant's final legacy is.
1: Well, I think it's the, like you said earlier, the way what, what things that have become industry standard now were not industry standard back then. And Peter was one of the people that helped make them industry standard. He helped change things. I saw an interview the other day with Adele's manager and in listening to him talking about how he masterminded, if you like, her career. He, it's he's all- done a brilliant job. She's done a brilliant job, regardless of whether you like the music or not. She's she, I mean she's huge here in the UK and Same, I know she's
0: no, she's huge here in America.
1: Yeah. She crossed over in America. And you know, she's not a pop star. She's not a pop star that's been designed in a factory, you no, know? No, no. She's her own person. And, but I found this interview online and this guy's talking, and it could have been Peter Grant talking about Led Zeppelin 40 years ago. It's about believing in the talent and believing in the artist. And if you believe it and the talent is there, it will work and we'll all get successful and we'll we'll all make a lot of money. And I think that that is the legacy. And like you said, the next generation of managers like Ed Bicknell came in and, People like Peter Mensch, who obviously did Metallica and ACDC, Bill yeah. Kirbishley, Bill Kirbishley, who's managed the Who, these are great managers. These guys stayed alive. You know, Kirbishley's story is fantastic. He came from a very tough background, worse start in life than Peter. You know, he's gone, went on and managed the Who. It's uh, uh, huge success and continues to do so. None of this would have been possible without someone like Grant with what with what Grant did. But as you said with Zeppelin, it's almost a perfect. They fit the seventies perfectly. Peter fitted that time perfectly, and I think that's why he would have ended up. You know, watching EastEnders and telling Guns and Roses manager to fuck off. <laughs> Rather than trying to manage Guns and Roses, oh, you know, yeah, an impossible gun. He'd have had Axl Rose in a headlock, <laughs> yeah in the face <laughs> within five minutes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so he belonged to a different era. Uh, you
0: know, you but, know, I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he could have managed axel uh, back in the day uh, when when Axl definitely needed managing. So, I'd love to see. That. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just, you know, I, I took away the, the, the you know, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of. Um, of melancholy or bittersweet uh, feeling that, you know, he was such a risk taker, um, no holds barred. He, uh, to use a wrestling term, he, um, you know, just, you know, didn't do it like the others. And he was so successful. And now we live in an age where, you know, especially in the music business, there are no risk takers.
1: No, because the business has changed, though. I think the business – I think that's the unavoidable thing with a book like this is, it, is it, you, you end up sounding like an old guy raging at the dying of the light, you know, and I was very careful. I didn't want it to come across like that. But it is, it is a bygone era you're not going to see that era again. You know, I mean, Pete, you know, the notion of downloads and streaming and Peter didn't understand CDs, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. it's, well, it's not been sold their publishing. Yeah, know. that's
0: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine how much money they could have had if they kept it, yeah. right?
1: Their attorney kept for himself. Yeah. So yeah. that goes back to what I was saying before about people were exploiting him later on in his life during his weakness, you know, and that was quite a revelation in the book. But I think that proves the point that, He'd done his time. He'd made his mark by then.
0: Well, it's a dense book, and we only just touched on uh, on the stories today. So, um, you know, I hope everybody goes out uh, and reads it, not just Led Zeppelin fans. Uh, you know, if you want to know a little bit about the business and how the business worked, and you know how to maybe do things differently. You know, I know you. You know, you just said that you know we will probably never see anything like this again. But I don't know. You know, it, it, it has to be risk taking. If there's no risk taking, then nothing's going to change. Oh, so
1: absolutely. It's a different- Different kind of risk taking, yeah. is
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. But still, yeah. you, you, you know, that's how that's that's how you make change. That's uh, that's how you become a Led Zeppelin. So.
1: Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So, what's next for you, Mark? I'm having a rest. You know.
1: <laughs> I, I feel like I've been dangled out of a fourth floor window by my ankles. Well, I hope they're I- thin. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, no, I'm 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 doing a lot of magazine work at the moment. Maybe a couple of other book ideas bubbling under, but uh, you know, this is this has been a real labour of love for me. This book, you know, yeah, I mean,
0: it comes across more, that
1: way more so having the family involved and knowing they didn't want to they didn't want to prove anything. They they said you know write this truthfully. And uh you know, like I said, there's, there's there's there are there is more we could have said, but not while certain people are still alive. <laughs> so it's you know Maybe it, maybe
0: it, a volume two in twenty years.
1: Let's a, like, yeah, let's let's wait for a few people to pop their
0: clogs first, as so. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well Mark Blake, thanks so much for being on Deeper Digs and Rock with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you for your interest, it's wonderful.
0: have a good time talking with Mark today. I cannot wait to cross the pond and continue the conversation with a pint in hand. Uh, Misty Mountain Hops? Oh, (laughs) you thought I was not. Well, uh, as we now know, Peter Grant, the character was a bit of a creation. He wasn't really a gangster, though he learned from hanging around some real cockney gangster types. He wasn't exactly a numbers guy or glad handler like many other famous managers. What he was, was fiercely loyal. A man who believed the artist comes first in all things and that his job was as protector, guard, loyal friend. The black dog incarnate. In the end, there was no one quite like him in the biz at the time. He really was the bridge between the past and the present in artist management. A bear of a man who was actually more Teddy, or or should I say Paddington, than Grizzly. He is missed by those who knew him best. Okay, so run out and get the full story in Mark Blake's Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin, and Beyond, The Story of Rock's Greatest Manager. It can be found at all the usual places, including our website. Right, time for my spot of tea. Um, Though that Peruvian marching powder sounded inviting, uh, yet I shall refrain for fear of no quarter. Okay, enough already, right? I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a Pantheon podcast. I'm going to ramble on, and you keep up the rockin'. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.